Welcome again to Hope. My name is Eli Sudarth. I am one of the ministers on staff here at the Ankeny campus. And in 2006, I was actually finishing up my undergraduate degree at the University of Iowa. Now, I know for some of you, that means I'm a little bit too young to be taken seriously. For others of you, probably more of you, that just means that I can't be taken seriously because I cheer for the wrong Iowa team. And it may not make much of a difference this fall, but we'll see. So I was finishing up my degree in 2006 studying English literature. And I know what you're thinking. How do you get a degree in English literature and expect to have a career? But don't worry, I had a backup plan. I'm smart. I double majored in linguistics. And don't worry, I know what you're thinking. I had a backup backup plan. If I wasn't able to find a job in English literature or in languages, I also minored in art history. So no worries. So uh, linguistics is great. It's the study of languages, how they work, what makes them do the things that they do. And it's also where the ESL program lives, the English as a Second Language program. And every international student that came through the University of Iowa had to take classes in English as a Second Language. I was getting certified as a teacher of English language as a Second Language. And so my job or, or part of my volunteer role in that program as I was getting certified was to go to these English as a Second Language classrooms rooms and serve as a teacher's assistant helping foreign language stu speaking students practice their English, do English conversation and to help them get better at those skills. It was a great opportunity. I got to meet students from all over the world studying, learning about their cultures and learning about their languages and where they were from. Some of them had just got to the United States. They didn't know anybody, have any friends. They were tremendous relationship building experiences for me. And some were more into it than others, but I will never forget the time that I met three of the most fun, gregarious international students I ever had, walked into the classroom one day and I saw these three guys at the back of my room just, you know, having a great time, telling jokes, really into it. And I walked back and I said, hey, my name is Eli. Uh, would you like to practice your English with me in conversation? And they were just overjoyed. Yes, we would love to practice with you. Sit down, let's talk. And that was when I met my three friends from Saudi Arabia. They had just arrived in the United States. They were roommates, and they were so interested in learning more about English as the language, but learning about our culture, and they were thrilled that they would actually have the ability to talk to somebody from the United States. So we started having conversations and getting to know each other, and as the weeks kept going by, it thought, we thought it might be fun just to get to know each other outside of the classroom. So then we started making plans to have coffee together or get lunch and have conversations. And uh, they loved to drink hot tea. It didn't matter what temperature it was outside. It could be 100 degrees, and those guys would drink hot cups of tea. I was, I'm drinking iced coffee or water to stay cool, and they're just enjoying their hot cup of tea. But anyway, we're meeting all the time, and we're having conversations, and we're getting to know each other. And the conversations are starting to get deeper and deeper. You know, it moves from what, what's your favorite food and what, do you, you know, what sports do you play back home to what's your family like and what, is, what, what are your hopes for study and what do you want to do when you grow up and with your life. And eventually, because of our cultural backgrounds, we begin discussing religion with each other because they're from Saudi Arabia, which is a, a Muslim country. And I was interested in their practice. They were faithful practitioners of the Islamic religion. And they learned very quickly that I'm a Christian and that I, I am passionate about my faith in Jesus Christ. And they wanted to learn about that. And they brought up the idea, hey, would you read the Quran with us and have conversations? And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. Would you read the Bible with me? And they were, they were thrilled. They had never been able to read the Bible before, didn't have access to it. So they're reading the Bible, and we're talking about it. I'm reading the Quran, and we're talking about that. We're learning about each other's religions and our, 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 our lives and what we really care about and are passionate about. 
Some of the most fruitful conversations of my senior year of college. I mean, that was also the year I met my wife, Katie. So that, those were up there, too. Those were some good conversations, too, when I was getting to know Katie. But, but these were great. So fast forward just a couple of months, and in February, they learned that it's my birthday coming up. And they said, Eli, we want to invite you over to our apartment to celebrate your birthday to cook you a traditional Saudi Arabian dinner. And this is great. We had never invited each other over to our apartments before because, let's face it, we're in college. And if you're in college or had been, you know that any other place in town is better than your junky apartment. And so we just never went over to each other's place. But they said, we want to bring you over and cook for you and celebrate your birthday in the way that is familiar to us. So I'm thrilled. I knew a little bit about Middle Eastern culture. I had spent some time in Turkey when I was in college. So I knew a couple of things to, to expect. But when they opened the door for me on that evening for dinner, I was just, I was knocked over by the delicious smells coming from their apartment. Now, let's just recognize how amazing it is for three college guys to cook a homemade meal anyway. And this was super impressive. I, I had never really smelled or experienced this, this, this fragrance before. Simple ingredients, but they even said, you know, some of these spices we had to bring with us when we moved over from Saudi Arabia because you just can't find them here. And they prepared all of this food and they put it in one large uh, copper or uh, yeah, copper platter, circular copper platter, and they set it down on the floor in the dining room with cushions all around it. We were going to sit on the floor and enjoy a traditional Saudi Arabian dinner together for my birthday. Now, like I said, I knew enough not to try to or to try not to show the soles of my feet because that was a, a sign of disrespect. But they actually got a really good kick out of me trying to sit cross-legged on the floor. It, just by looking at me, you kind of tell I'm not the most flexible person, and they just laughed that off, kind of gave me a pass. But I also knew not to eat with my left hand because we were eating by hand. We were everybody got a stack of homemade pita bread that they had made themselves, and you take off a piece of bread and you just scoop out whatever chicken or vegetables there were, and we were eating by hand using my right hand. And it's amazing what, what that environment created for intimate conversations. It's like our conversations went that much deeper because of the way we were eating and the way we were sharing things together. And as dinner starts to wind down and we're just feeling stuffed, one of them said, okay, now we want to give you a birthday present. I was already super humbled by this entire experience. I had friends in college for years. They didn't even know it was my birthday. And here are these guys who I had just met four or five months ago, making me dinner, inviting me into their home, giving me a present. And one of them went back to his room, and he brought out a, a, a handmade traditional Saudi Arabian garment. Um, think of like a toga, a one-piece wrap. They had to show me how to put it on, brightly colored and decorated. And, and as they're giving it to me, one of them says, looking me straight in the eyes, with all seriousness and passion, almost grabbing me by the shoulders. And he said, now that you have eaten this dinner with us, you are our brother. You are our brother. And he wasn't saying it like we sometimes say around church or in our culture, you know, you're my brother, you're my sister. They, they meant it, that I was joining their family. And then we began talking about, they, they shared how they were telling their, their parents back home in Saudi Arabia, we have an American friend and he spends time with us. And they were overjoyed that they had someone just to talk to and get to know and share their life with. That, that in their culture, what they were doing was welcoming me into their family. In a very real sense. And after that, I began reflecting differently on, on the many instances in Scripture when we see Jesus eating with people, sharing a meal with people who he's not necessarily supposed to share a meal with. Or it's an unexpected population. You know, it, wasn't, it was not lost on me and my Saudi Arabian friends in 2006 that the terrorist attacks of September 11th had just happened five years earlier. 
We were both aware of that. We were both, all of us were aware that 15 of those terrorists were, were nationals of Saudi Arabia. And we talked about those things. I wanted to know what it was like to hear that from their perspective. And they shared that even in their hometown, in Yanbu, in Saudi Arabia, right on the coast of the Red Sea, that they had experienced terrorism at the hands of Al-Qaeda in their hometown. And they were ashamed and embarrassed of, of the kind of, of reputation that they now had because of this and these incidents. But I had no idea of what their life was like, their culture, their perspective. And their culture around eating a meal together is actually much more closely related to how Jesus would experience eating a meal with somebody than it is our own. The, the town where they're from is only about a 12-hour drive to Jerusalem. What they do when they eat a meal with somebody more closely relates what Jesus has on his mind when he shares a meal with somebody. For us, when you invite, you know, invite people over to our house, or we used to, I'm sure we will someday again and have people over to our house for dinner. But when I do that, when we welcome people into our home, my first thought is I want them to be as comfortable as possible, right? Shoes on, shoes off, doesn't matter. Put your drink wherever, coasters, I'll figure it out later. Just my house is your house, right? That's kind of our attitude. Make yourself comfortable because for our culture, comfort is a pretty high priority. Well, for them, it's a lot different. For them, they consider honor the highest priority. That when you're a guest in their home, they want to make you feel like the most important person there because they see it as welcoming you into their family. So they want to treat you with a high level of honor. So when Jesus is having these meals with people all throughout his story in the New Testament, like we read in our Bible reading for today in Luke chapter 5, we aren't seeing Jesus just having a meal with somebody casually. These are intentional, relational moments where Jesus is saying to the person he's having a meal with, I am welcoming you into my family, and I am identifying with you and your people, and let's build that relationship together. Now, because of this understanding of, of family, of Jesus reinterpreting what it means to have a family, brothers and sisters, it actually causes some issues with his biological family. Jesus had a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters who Mary and Joseph had, and they start to become concerned about Jesus' habit of eating meals with people you're not supposed to eat meals with, like Levi. Levi was a tax collector, and we've mentioned this in sermons before. You've likely heard, maybe you have, tax collectors were one of the most despised people in Jesus' culture at the time. They collected taxes on behalf of the Roman government, and they lined their pockets by taking more, more taxes than were actually due. So they made themselves wealthy by stealing, by breaking one of the Ten Commandments, so everybody else in their culture would ostracize them. And Jesus sees Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. He knew exactly who he was and what he was up to, and he said, follow me. The next thing that Levi does, he invites him over to his house for dinner. Come and eat dinner with me, Jesus. On purpose, because he wanted to welcome him into his family, because he wanted his life to be aligned with his community. And Jesus gladly accepts and has a dinner full of people, with people who he wasn't supposed to be eating with, religious leaders and Pharisees. How can you eat with such scum? How could you do that? How could you welcome people into your family who don't belong? And his family begins to say things the same way. So in Mark chapter 3, we see Mark sort of stretch out this illustration in its fullest possible view. If you have your Bible or a Bible app, you can open to Mark chapter 3. Starting in verse 20, we see this happen again. Jesus is eating a meal with people he's not necessarily supposed to be eating with. It says, in starting in verse, verse 20 of chapter 3, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. 
That would typically be a detail we would just sort of skim right on past. But Mark writes it for a reason. You've heard me say, if you've heard me preach before, there are no accidental statements in the Bible because paper was super expensive back then. If they wrote it down, they meant to write it down. Writing down that they were having such a big banquet together that Jesus and his disciples weren't able to eat the food they were offering. Did anybody else? I grew up in a church that had a lot of potlucks. Anybody else? Potlucks? Potlucks are the best. Nobody else has been to a potluck. Seriously, Jared's been to a potluck. Potluck, you get to experience all these exotic foods from faraway houses, right? Stuff that everybody else eats this all the time, like crock pot mac and cheese and crock pot spaghetti and meatballs and crock pot. You get the idea. There was always that awesome family that just brought, brought a 50-piece chicken from, from KFC. That was the best. And all the kids were fixated on that. That's what we really wanted. And my mom and, and all the other moms who were good moms and knew how to practice hospitality took all those kids aside. And they said, now, you need to leave some for the rest of the people, right? You need to leave some for the guests. Don't take all the KFC. That sounds like what Jesus was up to, giving honor to people who they had invited over to their family, to welcome them into their family. Make sure there's food for everybody. And so the disciples and Jesus are not eating. And then what, what happens next is fascinating that Mark writes down. When Jesus' family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. What's the this they heard about? That he was eating dinner with a bunch of people, with a crowd he was teaching? That's it. That was so offensive to Jesus' biological family that they had to go and take charge of him or take him away or have him committed because they thought he was out of his mind for welcoming these people, this crowd, into their family. It wasn't just looking bad for Jesus. It was putting a bad light on his whole biological family. A lot of biblical historians agree that Jesus was likely born into what we would call the middle class you know, his, his dad had a job. His mom came from a known family. They had means enough to travel between their hometown and Jerusalem every year. So with more stuff, you have more to lose. With a better reputation, you've got that reputation to lose. And that's what his family was seeing when Jesus is inviting people into their family. The, this scum, these sinners. So they try to take him away. And, and the scene plays out, and Jesus even has a debate back and forth with some religious leaders who were there, who, who were convinced, not only are you out of your mind, you must be demon-possessed. This is so bad. I mean, and it's hard for us from a Western culture to appreciate this, but this was that offensive to a Middle Eastern culture that you would be eating a meal with these people. And Jesus has this back and forth where he says, I cast out demons, so obviously I can't be demon-possessed. And, and then it, it kind of goes further on, and they're continuing this banquet together. And then Jesus, it says in verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived again, standing outside. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And then Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. And again, it's not an accident that Mark writes this detail. Seated in a circle around him, a traditional way to share a meal in the Middle East. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus totally reshapes the question of, of who is a part of our family. Who belongs to our family together? The, the sermon series that we've been in the month of August has been called Who's In and Who's Out. 
And each week we've been exploring a different way that Jesus turns upside down our, our answers to the question, who's in? Who's in this family of God? And, and throughout the generations of Christianity, I think we've, we've been given unhelpful and even unbiblical answers to that question. Who's in the family of God? Well, it's people who act a certain way or look a certain way or, or say the right words or, or have their life all figured out. People who aren't messed up, people who don't sin. That's who's in. Who's out? Maybe the same type of stuff. People, certain people are disqualified from the family of God for reasons that we have come up with, none that are actually in the Bible. When Jesus said, those who are a part of my family, my mother and my brothers and my sister, are those who do the will of God. Now, what is that qualifier? I don't want to change what Jesus is saying. Those who do the will of God, what's the will of God? Again, when Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment, Jesus? That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself, that's who's in. If you love Jesus, if you love God and you love your neighbor, that is who is in. And there is nothing that disqualifies you. There is nothing that takes you out of the love of God, according to Scripture. No matter what you look like, no matter where you're from, no matter what you say, these are things that do not disqualify you. There are things that Jesus wants to do in your life. Those who do the will of the Father, who love the Lord their God. Jesus wants his banquet hall to be filled. So much so that he continues to preach and teach about this. He continues to preach and teach about what it means for heaven to be more crowded. If you've been around Hope the last six or seven months, we've laid out a new vision for 2020. And part of it is to bring Christ to all cultures to make heaven more crowded. That's the vision of our church. That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be a part of heaven, making it crowded. And Jesus preaches about this, again, in Matthew chapter 22. I got to get my phone out again. I took pictures of all these, so I didn't have the pages of the Bible were blown around. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is teaching a parable about what it means to be in. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Jesus is telling a parable about those who were God's special chosen people when introduced to the king didn't seem to care. They were invited, but it wasn't their priority. Then he sent some more servants, and they said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. But they paid no attention and went off. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. That's Jesus' picture of heaven. Filled to overflowing with guests, good and bad. That Jesus is making a radical statement about those who belong to his family, those who he calls his mother, his brother, his sisters. It's not disqualified based on the things that we think of. You are included into the family of God when you put Jesus first and you love your neighbor as yourself. One of the other ways that Jesus gets described in the New Testament and prophesied about in the Old Testament, another metaphor around food, around nourishment, Jesus is called the living water. The living water. And part of what comes to mind, is, is supposed to come to mind, is that he is the one that quenches our spiritual thirst. 
He is what we can take into ourselves to have our thirst quenched. When he sits down at the well with the woman in John chapter 4, and again, three reasons, three external reasons Jesus is not supposed to be having a conversation with this woman. She's a woman, first of all. She is from a foreign country and a part of a different culture, and she has had sexual indiscretions in her past. And those things do not disqualify her from being a part of Jesus' family or conversation. He talks to her at the well, and he says, if you had asked me for a drink... I would give you water and you would never thirst again. You would have water for eternal life in himself. If you would take me into your life, if you would accept my invitation to the banquet, if you would take me as your Lord and Savior, then you would never thirst. You would have life forever and ever. And so we're meant to think of Jesus as living water, satisfying our spiritual thirst for all of eternity. But the other interesting thing, the Bible talks about this as well, about water is that because of its properties, it takes on whatever shape it's poured into. The living water of Jesus Christ takes on whatever shape it's poured out into. You could have the most beautiful, ornate, crystal pitcher. I don't have one, so I don't even know. The most beautiful-looking thing that could ever hold water and pour it in there, and it would take the same shape as if you dumped it in that pond. It would take the same shape. So Jesus, the living water, when he is poured out from heaven, does not come, God does not come into our world and say, you need to get your act together or you can't be a part of my family. You need to change to meet my requirements or you can't be a part of my family. God doesn't say, I'm coming into your world so that you can get your life in order to be perfect and then you can belong. No, Jesus takes on the shape of our world, all of its mess, all of its disease, all of its brokenness and all of its pain. All of its sin, Jesus takes on that shape to allow us to have communion with him, to welcome us into his family. And he expects the church to be the same. He expects the church to take on the shape of the world around it so that the world can receive the love of Jesus Christ. To go out into the world, to reach out to the world, and to share Jesus' love by taking on the shape of the communities that we're called to serve. Not expecting the world to conform to us, but actually going into the world the way that Jesus came into our world and taking on people's mess so that they can have new life, so that they can experience for the very first time, maybe, the God who loves them through Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church. That's our goal. That was even the goal prophesied in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. On that day, verse 8, on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem half of it east to the Dead Sea, half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea. In summer and in winter, the Lord will be king over all the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. So when we are, when we are sharing with the world around us the everlasting love of Jesus Christ, when we are offering the gift of new life in Jesus with other people around them, what we're not saying is that unless you do these certain things, you can't belong. What we are saying is that come, you can come and meet Jesus today. You can have your life filled with living water today. He will work inside of you to take care of all of the things that need to be taken care of. But how are people going to experience that unless we invite them in? Unless we welcome them to the table of the Lord. And that's what we want to do today. This isn't the first weekend of the month. That's typically, uh, traditionally, when we at Hope Ankeny celebrate communion together, the sacrament of communion. But it just didn't make sense to talk about what it means, what it means to share a meal with Jesus Christ and not share this meal that he told us to, to, to share with each other. So hopefully when you came in, you received a communion kit just a little uh, packet with, a, with a, a wafer on top sealed in and a cup of juice in the bottom. We have some more available at the top of the hill. I don't want anybody to miss this. 
Because at, at Lutheran Church of Hope, we recognize what is called open communion, which means that if you're not a member of our church, you can and are, are welcome to take communion with us. But I also want to make a, a very clear statement about what we mean when we say open communion. It also means that this is for those of you who have accepted that invitation to Jesus' table who have said yes to the overwhelming and unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Even if today is that day for you, if today you want to say for the first time, Jesus, I accept your invitation. I'm ready to come to the table. I want this new life. I want your love. Then this is for you today. There's no obstacle between you and sitting at the table of the Lord and being welcomed in as his brother and his sister. So before we take this together, what I actually want to do is, is add on to what we typically say. I want you to look at somebody next to you or in an adjacent circle or one of your family members. And just like what was done for me at a special dinner 14, 15 years ago, I want you to look at your neighbor and with all passion and seriousness, I want you to affirm for them by saying, you are my brother or you are my sister and really mean it because that's what Jesus has done for us. He looks you straight in your eyes and with all passion and all seriousness. He literally means you are part of my family forever. So go ahead and take a moment to do that. Affirm for somebody else their identity as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ.